0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm back here in the studio of Gangland Wire on another Zoom interview. Now that I've discovered Zoom, it seems to work a little better, and people are more familiar with it. It's easier interface than Skype, so I'm doing Zoom interviews now. I've got Sonova Cantrell here with me. She's a fellow Missourian and a true crime writer, and has been for a long time. We've done a show with her before, and it's always a good show. And she's got a big interest, and has written a book recently titled "Murdered in Mississippi," and it's about a subject that I find fascinating the Dixie Mafia. Now, you've heard of the La Cosa Nostra Mafia, the Mafia of the Sicilian Mafia, the Italian Mafia, whatever you want to call it, the Camorra and then Drangheta, but this is the Dixie Mafia, and it's probably not exactly like the Italian Mafia, but it has a lot of similarities. Uh, welcome, Sonova. I'm really glad to have you back.
1: Uh, thanks, Gary. One thing to point out, Murdered in Mississippi is a website that I run. The title of the book is Silenced by the Dixie Mafia.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should have better notes. That's okay. (laughs) And and read them. (laughs) That's okay. The title to the book, do that again. Now tell me the title of that book.
1: Title of the book is Silence by the Dixie Mafia. The subtitle is called The Anderson Files.
0: Your website is?
1: I have several websites. The main site is synovainc.com and then mytruecrimestories.com is what runs the blog. And then I run a whole Dixie Mafia site called Murdered in Mississippi, and it is all nothing but Dixie Mafia stuff. And so that's what the Murdered in Mississippi is. But the book title is Silenced by the Dixie Mafia, The Anderson Files.
0: Okay, and that's what we're going to talk about today in particular, because it as I was watching, monitoring your stuff on Facebook, uh Sonova's all over Facebook too, by the way, folks. So go out there on your Facebook's sites and, and look for her and, and like or subscribe to her sites because you'll get a lot of good information and follow her on Facebook. You start out talking about Buford Pusser and everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people, especially people of a certain age, know the story of Buford Pusser, the Tennessee sheriff that was killed under strange circumstances after a a big battle with some illegal casinos in his hometown. They did a movie called Walking Tall. I think it was the state line mafia, they called it, that he got involved with. So tell me a little bit about the murder of Buford Pusser.
1: Okay. Well, the story starts a little bit before the murder of Buford Pusser. Um, You have a young Tennessee sheriff. He was an ex-wrestler. He was six foot something, six and a half foot, something like that, 200 and something pounds. He was a big guy, just a big old country boy. And he ended up, through a series of circumstances, ended up being the McNary... County, Tennessee Sheriff. And at the time, it was dry. There was no was supposed to be no moonshine, no liquor, anything. And right on the state line of Mississippi and Tennessee, there was a group of rowdy rousers that was kind of nicknamed the state line mob. Now That had got characters like Louise Hathcock and Jack Hathcock and Toehead White and a bunch of others. Well, those are the main characters I want you to keep in mind because Louise Hathcock was a pistol. And there was one of those things, Petey Plunk was one of the deputies that worked with Buford Pusser, and he is going on record to say, or he had gone on record to say, that he would rather have Al Capone gunning for him than Louise Hathcock. And that was given to the Tennessee and newspaper. I have to think about the date. But anyways, this is the type of woman we're talking about. She was no mob mole. She was the mob. And the guys, they tagged along with her. And if not, she had enough connections that you would be taken out, or you would get in line. Well, anyways, Toehead White was her boyfriend, and together they conspired to kill her husband, Jack Hathcock. And then they gave them free reign to take over the state line operations. Mainly bootlegging, prostitution, and a few of other illegal things. There was a, a little bit of murder here and there. But basically, this is what happened. By the time Buford Pusser became sheriff, Jack was already gone. Louise had already built up this massive legend about how ruthless she was. And there was a lot of times where people would come by. They ran this establishment called the Shamrock Hotel I call it hotel, motel, and restaurant. So they would lure in tourists with a cheap homemade breakfast that was actually pretty good, but then they would have them stay overnight, and they would be robbed, they would be mugged, they would be beaten if they threw a fit, and some of them, they say, were killed and dumped in the Tennessee River. Haven't been able to find any evidence of that, but there's a lot of evidence of the robbery that was going on. Well, on a very fateful day, I believe it was in 1966... Buford Pusser is called to the Shamrock Motel again for the thousandth time. He takes along his deputies. He goes there because some tourists were robbed in the night. They were drugged and then their hotel, uh, their motel room was robbed. He goes in and he is under the assumption that he's just going to get the stuff back. He's going to leave. Well, Louise Hathcock was in a lot of trouble at that point in time. Looked like she was going to prison. Her her boy toy, Toehead White, was in prison. And things started falling apart for her. And for the first time, she couldn't blame it off on a man. Everyone knew she wasn't this innocent little princess. So she looked at, was looking at hard time. And so... She lured Buford Pusser back to her room. She's like, I need to talk to you, Cher. Just this, the two of us. Well, he was dumb enough to go. He walks down the hall and into this little room. She turns around, shoots from the hip, misses him. He falls down onto the bed and out comes his 45, And he shoots three consecutive shots. One hits her, turns her around. So it shoots her here, shoots her in the back of the shoulder, and then shoots her again. So within seconds, this is all done. She's on the floor. She's dying. This was the first state line mobster that was taken out by the police. Most of the time, they took out each other. Well, that was one of those things where everyone in the area, other than the criminals, thought it was a good thing. They went ahead and put Buford on, uh, did a little investigation, and yes, it came out. This was self-defense. But the problem was, is that was the start of the war. That was... The war had been going on for a while, but that was what escalated it. A year later, August 12, 1967, was when Buford Pusser and his wife were ambushed on New Hope Road. His wife was killed. Buford had his face shot off. They were left for dead. And that is what the Walking Tall movies were about, okay? Well, the reason that happened was because he had taken out Toehead White's woman a year before. And there's a lot of story in between there, all the different hits that went wrong. They tried to take out Buford before that. So but what people don't realize in the story that was made into the Walking Tall movies, there have been witnesses that come forward now that are still terrified to, to say their name. They have come forward and have shed a whole brand new light on that ambush. Everyone thought that Buford was the target of that ambush. That was not the case. And here's what comes in and ties in the whole story together. Toehead White got his good friend Kirksey Nix to do the hit. Well, there was a whole Mississippi crew that actually took over that hit. You wonder why they never found the people that actually killed Pauline Pusser because everyone, all the investigation was centered around Toehead White's crews there in Tennessee. Well, Kirksey Nix was smarter than that. He got a whole entire unknown crew out of Mississippi. And this book tells who that crew was. And what happened. Well, unfortunately, in the middle of this war, one very innocent young crippled boy was brought in as a decoy. The whole point of this was they didn't want to take out Buford Pusser. Toe wanted to make Pusser suffer, so he wanted to take out his woman. The whole point was Pauline was supposed to stay at the house that day. They had a second car waiting, watching the house. They were going to send this crippled boy up to the door and ask for help. Then the boys were going to ambush her right there. Now, the cripple boy had no idea what was going on. He was just being used as a pawn. Well, later, six weeks later, he would lose his life when he goes to try to leave the area because he had seen too much. And so that's what this book entitles. And so you actually have just a very few thin strings, few threads that actually tie Buford Pusser all the way down to the ambush and then all the way on into the Dixie Mafia and the murders of the judge and his wife in Biloxi, Mississippi.
0: Right. And so the Dixie Mafia, actually, it's more like this loosely kind of organized criminal, little criminal gangs that know each other, that all run across the mid-south of Mississippi, and, and that's a deep south, but Tennessee, Kentucky, northern parts of Alabama and, and Louisiana and Mississippi on down into the, the deeper south. And so they don't have like a commission like they do in uh, New York City or anything, but it's this loosely connected group of gangs of criminals and that come under the, I think the word is rubric of Dixie Mafia. And you know, for you podcast fans out there, for you wiretappers out there, if you're ever in Tennessee, I did this once. I was taking, a motorcycle trip across Tennessee, you can go to the Buford Pusser Home at 342 Pusser Street in Adamsville, Tennessee. It's like kind of right in the middle of Tennessee, say halfway between uh, Memphis and Knoxville. And it's got a big gate up there and it's got his name and got some some other things. So, that's kind of an interesting little stop off if you're traveling through the Mid-South. And so Kirksey Nix, that is fascinating. See, I didn't really realize all that. This Kirksey -Kirksey Nix brought in a whole nother crew to do this Job, And then Buford Pusser gets killed in an automobile accident shortly after that or sometime after that, which was never really solved whether it was an accident or murder. But then this story spins off down into, I believe it's Bloxy, Mississippi and the murder of a judge. Is that right?
1: Yes. Kirksey Nix was involved in all of this. Seven years later, Buford Pusser dies in this fiery, his Corvette goes up in flames in this fiery crash. They check the tie rods and the brakes, and those two things they say weren't tampered with, and so they say it was an accident. Well, I have, actually, I can't say the name, but I have criminals Dixie Mafia bigwigs, let's just put it that way. I've had one of the sons come up and tell me, yes, my dad confirmed that car was rigged in police interviews. He claims, I mean, in jailhouse interviews, he claims he has it on recorded tape where his dad was telling him that, yes, Buford Pusser's death was not an accident. Now, how far that would go in court, probably nowhere. There's very few people around that care anymore, so I don't know if anything would happen with it. But that is something, and I have been told that before, but it was just more of a conspiracy theory type thing. But this person is the son of a Dixie Mafia kingpin, and before he died in prison, he did say that Buford Pusser was killed. Now, how much you could take that for, I don't know. There's not enough left of that poor car, to really do a good investigation maybe nowadays we could because the you know of all the forensic sciences that we have now but back then that only thing they could check, I got the report from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, and they literally submitted three pieces of the car, and that was it. The two tie rod ends and the brake line or something to do with the brakes. That was it. And I'm like, well, that's not a thorough investigation. (laughs) You know, if someone wanted to tamper a car, I'm sure they could find another way. But that was all they had at the time. So you have to take that and leave it however you want. You can, you know, conspiracy theorists, they're going to love it. They're going to eat it up. People that are a little more practical maybe. Maybe they won't, but I just leave that hanging as it is in the book. It's like, this is the information I have. If you read the walking tall book, I mean, the walking on book by his daughter before she passed away, she does say that it was, he was murdered because she said that he, her grandmother got death threats over the phone that day. There was someone that kept anonymously calling and finally she's like, he's not going to be home all day. Just tell me what the problem is. And he says, they're going to kill him tonight. They're going to kill him tonight. Now, I don't have any record of that. I don't know if she had records of that, but that's what the family and the close friends of the Buford Pusser's family actually believes. They actually believe that this is what happened. So, again, it's so far gone. I don't know what could ever happen with that, but that's kind of the conspiracy theory around that. Now, you take... go all the way down to the Dixie Mafia. Now, I downloaded, I think it was a 137-page report from Oklahoma, the district attorney of Oklahoma. He had this entire report written about the Dixie Mafia, and he says that it is so much bigger than anyone gives it credit for, and it was almost like he was begging for someone to look into this. He's like, listen, you know, at first they called them traveling criminals because they traveled all over the South. It wasn't just in one area, two areas, every state. you have tracks of Kirksey Nicks in almost every state in the South. And so they traveled everywhere. Well, the thing is, is yes, they are an organization. And he says they are very well organized. They're just organized differently. And he said, so while the Italians have this very specific business-like hierarchy, the Dixie Mafia doesn't. The Italians have very specific rules. You're not supposed to take someone else's wife. You're not supposed to kill a journalist or anyone public, you know, like that because it would bring too much heat. There's all sorts of things the Italians were supposed to do. Of course, they broke the rules, but there was always consequences if they did. The Dixie Mafia... They were just out for themselves. They all wanted to work with Kirksey Nix because he had the name, he had the connections all across the South, and so they all kind of interconnected with Kirksey Nix, but... They did have their own factions in each state. I did notice, and of course I'm doing this decades later, I'm following all the murder cases. You can tell when they start running drugs or when they start running whatever they're running, each state seemed to have its choice of how they were going to run it. So in some states it was crop duster planes, and it's almost like as soon as they got to the border, they did semis in another state. There was one state that they shipped everything through through post office boxes. They just mailed everything. And so it's like every state, they had their own little way of doing things, but it all relates back. Now, the bad thing about the Dixie Mafia, if you want to get there, it's all bad, but (laughs) if you really want... The Italians, they at least had order. They were vicious, violent criminals that murdered people, yes, but they had order to their organization. The Dixie Mafia, it was all about the individual... They would take your woman if they wanted your woman and you didn't like it, they'd kill you. If they wanted the money that they thought you had, whether you had it or not, they would kill you, you know. And so to stay at the top of this organization, you just had to be the craziest, most vicious person there was. And so there was less rules They were more violent. And there's even a lot of evidence how the Italians, if they didn't want to get their hands dirty with something, they would hire out the Dixies because they knew those crazy thugs would take the heat and take care of it. And they had bought off so many people in the South because, see, during their heyday, the South was extremely broke. And so you've got a police officer who can't hardly put food on the table and you've got this guy that comes up and says, hey, I'll give you a year's worth of wages per month. If you'll just look the other way, don't pay attention when I do something. If you, you know, and it's always, ne- they never really asked for anything major. They just said, don't pay attention to my guys. Don't follow them. You hear the name, you ignore it. It was never go out and kill somebody and I'll pay you this money. It was always something that seemed innocent. And that's how they bought people off. And so by doing that, they had to run to the South. They could do whatever they want. And it spread from Tennessee, uh, from Texas, all the way to Florida. I mean, uh, there was one place in New Orleans where the Italians and the Dixies ran some of the same area in New Orleans, but they knew not to cross each other's paths. So they really tried not to. Uh, Marcello was one that people don't realize. Toehead White was Marcello's driver. And so they had good connections there. But so they really watched themselves in in Italian-run areas, but they didn't fear nobody. And so this is what the book kind of goes into detail. I may write another book that really goes into the things because you've got some serious serial killers like Bill Club and Billy Sunday Burt. Those guys, they would class in my book, just from their psychology, they would class more as serial killers, the way they stalked their prey and they hunted them down and And so, but the Dixie Mafia just, it's like a grassroots system. You can't pull up one blade of grass out of your yard by the root. It pulls up all these others. Well, that's exactly the way this is. It's just strung across the South like grass is the way the Dixie Mafia is.
0: So how did they happen to kill this judge? Was the judge on the take? You know, we talk about their political connections, and I can see how you could do that in the South, especially during the 50s and 60s when they were probably getting going and getting somewhat organized after the war that the South was so poor. Yeah. And especially the rural areas. And then when narcotics came in, there was so much money for them to make. I, it would be easy. And if you look in some of the popular shows today that you talk about, uh, Toehead White and Louise Hathcock, was that her name? Yeah. Darlene and Jacob Snell in the Ozark movie <laughs> kind of reminded me of them, this murderous couple that would kill anybody that got in their way. Then if you, you look at the series Justified, the people that, that U.S. Marshal dealt with, they were, and the corrupt police, Policeman was, was part of it too. That was, that was a typical story of the Dixie Mafias. And what was that movie? It was, uh, so well done. A winner's bone. Yeah. A, and that kind of showed another little aspect of the Dixie Mafia or the organized crime fact gangs in, in Mid-South. the mid-south part of the United States. So, so it's, it's never been titled as such in the popular media, but that's what they were talking about. And, right. and I suspect that eventually the popular media will get around to this, mm-hmm. uh, Idea of the Dixie Mafia, and, and look at some of these stories that you're, right. uh, you're writing and, and working on now, which will be a good will be good for you one of these days, possibly. Right. Stage. So, uh, tell tell us about this judge.
1: Okay. Well, by the time the judge story comes along, we're talking in the mid '80s now, so we have jumped twenty something years. The main guy, Dixie Mafia Kingpin, his name's Kirk Senex, he's in prison for life by then, so people are like oh, they're in prison, they can't do nothing. That is absolutely false. He had created to scam homosexual men into thinking that he was this poor, beautiful young man that was wrongly accused because of his of his orientation and he's in prison for life and all he needed was some money to get a good lawyer and he could buy his way out of this come help a brother, you've got to help me and he took pictures. He, he found some, some very pretty boys in prison and doctored up some photos. And so he wasn't even sending photos of himself, but he would even get on calls with these people. And he just a very smooth talker and he's a con man, you know, so he just con these poor people out of everything. He found a way to get to them and he conned them out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're not even sure how big of a scope this is. Within a year, he had, they had $100,000 goes missing. So the way the scheme was set up is he had a corrupt attorney and his girlfriend and a few others that would collect these monies. And so one of the big wigs in the Dixie Mafia was named Mike Gillich and he ran some strip clubs, and so people could go and drop off these gifts for this poor gay guy in prison at these certain locations, okay, and one of them, you know, some of them was Mike Gillick's club, and then they would send it to the attorney, and the attorney would put it in a safe deposit box in the bank, okay, and so it was the only people that could get into that safe deposit box was the attorney and the girlfriend of Kirksey Nix. Well, here comes the problem. This attorney decides, oh my gosh, I'm stashing up all this cash. For this guy who's never going to get out of prison. And I want a piece of it. And so he gets greedy. And he starts siphoning some off. Well, he knows he's going to get caught. And so what he does is he changes... Safety deposit box. He convinces Kersey Nicks that his girlfriend can't be trusted. He changes safety deposit boxes and puts all this money over here. And the only two names on this are his name and a judge by the names of Vincent Sherry. Now, Vincent Sherry happened to be a law partner with Pete Halat before he became judge. So now, when that money is missed, Halat has a safe way of getting out of it. He has a scapegoat now. Well, the only other person on that safety deposit box is the judge. Now from all public Knowledge. the judge was clean. There's always conspiracy theorists, but from what we can tell, the judge was clean. He had nothing to do with none of this. But his wife and him were both hated because his wife was trying to run for mayor and wanted to take out the casinos, was very pious, didn't want any gambling, didn't want anything. She wanted to get rid of vice. And the town would suffer because they didn't have anything else to replace it. So, I mean, from a business standpoint, that wasn't a good thing. But from her standpoint, she was very vocal about it. So, they were fine taking them both out. Kirk, Nix hires it out, and they take out the judge and his wife. Now, in between all of these stories, I talk about the Andersons, because way back at the hit of Pauline Pusser, the Andersons are involved, because that crippled boy was named Ronnie Anderson. That was the son of Dan Anderson. Now, Dan Anderson was the bailiff for the judge. He was actually the first one to find the bodies, him and Pete Halat. Well, Pete Hillat covers it up and sends the corrupt cop home he goes and conveniently rediscovers the body the next day with an innocent law partner who has no idea, okay? Because he didn't want Dan involved. And so each case, there's a public story that has been accepted for decades. And then there's this behind-the-scenes story that's not quite what we've been told. And then every time this comes up, we have witnesses that have come forward. We have different details that have come forward. And over this course of this time, Dan Anderson starts finally starting to talk when he's in his 80s. He's being threatened. He's been intimidated all of his, you know, police career. He wasn't a very, I won't say mentally capable. He had some disabilities and issues to where he was very easily manipulated. And so he was kept in silence for decades. And then when they started coming around eyeing his daughter, he couldn't take anymore. He couldn't take losing another one. And he started talking. He was killed four months later. In each case, they try to put it up as suicide, even though none of the facts follow a suicide at all. And so that's what this book's about. It ties all of these public stories that we've all heard into one family called the Andersons and then it also comes in and brings in all these backstories that and things that we've never heard of you know down to the fact that there's one tidbit of information that kind of pass over when they listen to the Buford Pusser story if you study and read all the newspaper archives and everything when Buford first was rolled into that hospital and they were trying to get as much out of him as they could because they didn't think he was going to make it out of surgery his first recollections right there was there were two cars in the ambush. By the time he goes through all of the surgeries and all this uh, reconstructions and all this stuff, everything has kind of tailored down to one Cadillac. So what happened to the other Cadillac? Well, I know what happened to that other Cadillac. It was two separate Cadillacs. One was black. One was a real dark green. So depending on the light, it looked black or it looks green. They were two Cadillacs. One of them was Dan Anderson's. Six weeks later, his son is killed. The car blows up in front of a courthouse somewhere. So where did the guns go? People have looked for the ambush gun of Buford Pusser for decades. Well, we have a theory. We think they were behind Dan Anderson's door for decades. He had them hid behind a rack behind his closet door to where in his bedroom to where no one would see it. It was a strangely modified, what you could call, machine gun. And there's all these different things. And then as soon as Phyllis sees the gun for the first time, her her dad freaks out for no reason, and the gun disappears. Well... Now we've got ties back. There's some little things they talk about that was done to redo that gun after the ambush. And But the problem is, is now the younger brother pawned him off. So we're sitting here going, could the ambush gun still be out there? Because it wasn't destroyed. It was meticulously rebuilt and re-blued and restocked and re-everything. Of course, we know with ballistics that that don't matter. As long as it still has the same barrel, the same firing mechanism, we can still match it ballistically. So there's that little bit of mystery in there. Well, could the gun that took out Pauline Pusser still be out there? Most likely because it was never destroyed. That's what this book's about. It ties all of this stuff together with those threads from Back to Bute for Presser, all the way through the murder of a judge, and then another suspicious suicide. And then it talks about the story of the daughter who has fought for 54 years for someone to fight for her brother, because the suicide that they so-called staged... Doesn't even make sense. And so that's what the book's about. It's really about that little boy because I feel like in all of this chaos and all this crime and all this war, the one true innocent victim that never made the choice to be in this life was that little crippled boy who was in leg braces. He was a polio victim and he was... Back then they were... It was a bunch of leather straps and steel cable things. Yeah. And... He had some mental issues because he could never fit in, could never, you know, the one time the boys ask him to go out for a ride at the night, he borrows his dad's car and they use him in such a hideous manner and then kill him for it later. So to me, Dan Anderson made some choices. He allowed his addiction to become something he could be manipulated by, by the Dixie Mafia. He was still an adult, he made his choices, but this one boy had nothing to do with that. He never made it. He kind of died for the sins of the father kind of thing. And so this book is fairly short. It's very condensed. I could have gone off on a tangent a hundred different ways, but I told her, I'm writing this in memory of your little brother. Yeah. You know, I'll write other books about Buford Pesser. I can write other books about the Dixie mafia. But in my eyes, this story of this little boy needs to be told. And 54 years after he was brutally killed by his so-called friends, it is and that's the purpose behind this i'm i want people to realize that their decisions affect other people and in reality a lot of decisions were made outside of that little boy that ended up making him lose his life for it. And so, so that's what this book's about. It's about the Dixie Mafia. It's about Buford Passer, but it's about one warrior woman who has fought for 54 years saying, please, somebody remember my little brother.
0: And that would be Phyllis Cook, I think is her name. And she was, uh, her maiden name was Anderson though. So mm-hmm. she was, mm-hmm. she was a daughter. of uh, Dan Anderson. Dan Anderson and the brother of the little boy. Okay. Interesting. You had a source right close to that whole thing. So it sounds interesting. It sounds fascinating. Sonova, I appreciate it. Why don't you go back over all the ways that you can help people out there and your websites and books and you do consulting or coaching. Uh, explain what coaching, explain what you do there and then okay. uh, we'll end this off.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I have several different websites. If you want nothing but Dixie Mafia content, it's murderedinmississippi.com. If you want true crime stories and all that, you go to mytruecrimestories.com. If you can't remember all the different sites, that's okay because my main head site is Inc.com and that has Links to all the other things. But on that, I have true crime stories. I do, I work as a victims advocate with Missouri Missing. I volunteer with them. I have a case submission form. So if you have a case that you would like us to cover, then you can go through that. If you are a victim yourself and you need someone to go over your case, we are not a legal authority. We are not police. We are just a media. So I write and I market it to the best of my ability. I can't guarantee anything, but I do use my skills to help victims. That that need their case looked at, I will bring attention to your case. And so if you have something like that, go to the case submission form and submit your case. Now, I do have a team of uh, guest bloggers who help maintain the blog, and so give them a shout out. So it may not be me specifically. But I've started to build a team around that, so we will get to it. That is how I help those. And then I started helping victims who want to write their own book, or, you know, if you are law enforcement and you want to write your book, if you are anybody that wants to write a book, I've started doing author coaching and success coaching to where I teach people how to write their own story, how to market it, how to build a platform and that sort of thing. All of that is Sonova Simply Biz and that is under the Sonova Inc. website as well. So that way I can kind of help people in whatever aspect. I've got crime writers. I've got victims of violent crime that have overcome and they're wanting to tell their story. I've got fiction and fantasy writers. You don't have to have any specific genre. I just teach you the basics. All of that is under sunovainc.com. Then I'm all over Facebook. I've got several pages on Facebook and it's under Sonovi Publishing. If you want the author coaching, it's Sonova Simply Biz and just look up Sonova and if it says Cantrell or Ink behind it, it's me. Yeah, and okay. uh, there's very few Sonovas. I did notice there's a couple of, I think, Japanese Sonova something that's not me. I'm not Asian. Okay.
0: Okay. If it's if it's an unpronounceable last name, you'll know it's not this. It's not Sonoma. me. <laughs> it's not Arsenova. All right, God, you're a busy lady. I'll say that. Making hay while the sun shines. I see you got your fedora on here. I've got my bowler hat here. I wear every once in a while, <laughs> but I, I got I wear these headphones here. So uh...
1: I know it's hard. It's hard. I did one interview on the radio and I had to throw them down around my neck and just pull them up like this.
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess I could have done that.
1: <laughs> Comfortable and they don't stay in place very yeah, right. well. So exactly. you'd think with all of our technology nowadays, they could make a set of headphones that we could wear with a hat.
0: You know, it's a weird deal. I had some earbuds I put in, but for some reason they didn't work in this I computer. Agree. I don't know. You know, it's technical stuff. It drives right. me crazy. Sonova, I appreciate it. and I Thank you. You have a good one. You. It's really really interesting talking to you as usual. Thank you. You too. Bye. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from... PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area or there's a national hotline 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov and this site contains a lot of interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a Cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. have got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Sabella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, how FBI Wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps, to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.